So Winston Churchill was a powerful advocate for the nation state and the concept of national sovereignty, especially for those smaller countries. He fully appreciated that states might occasionally need to band together. He was a great supporter of the foundation of NATO, for example. But he saw the post-Westphalian nation state as the essential building block of civilized international relations. In his writings, especially his history of the English-speaking peoples, Churchill traced the way that the nation-state evolved over time. He saw it as a prerequisite for a rules-based existence for citizens. Quote, the underlying idea of the sovereignty of law, long existent in feudal custom, was raised by it into a doctrine for the national state. Churchill was not a Christian. Uh, he said that his relationship with the Church of England was like that of a flying buttress in that he supported the church, but from the outside. Uh, but he applauded the part that the Anglican church had played in the strengthening of the nation-state in the 16th century. Churchill did believe, by the way, in an almighty, although when you look into it theologically, the primary duty of the almighty was to look after Winston Churchill. It was not just the nation-states of the English-speaking world that Churchill sought to protect and promote. In his famous Zurich speech of uh, September 1946, he said, small nations will count as much as large ones and gain their honor by their contribution to the common cause. Churchill was the father of the concept of the United States of Europe, delivering inspiring speeches in the mid to late 1940s in Zurich, The Hague, and Strasbourg. He promoted the idea that the nation states of Western Europe band together in a free trade Zolverein that would hopefully make war impossible between states whose enmity had led to the loss of so many of his friends' lives, not once, but twice that century. Let Europe arise, he said at Strasbourg. Of course, NATO was already in existence eight years before the European Economic Community was founded in 1957. But the common market was to be the economic pillar of Western European unity, whereas NATO was the military one. As such, the United States fully supported it, little recognizing that the ultimate ambition of many of the founders of the EEC was to become a superpower that they hoped would one day come to rival America herself. It was a part of Churchill's essential magnanimity and victory, which many rightly see as the single most powerful aspect of his political creed after defiance in seeming defeat, to support the economic unification of a ravaged continent after the Second World War. That was both the most idealistic, but also the most rational thing to do after Germany had unleashed no fewer than five wars of aggression in the three quarters of a century after 1864. It's good to be here in Brussels, inside the belly of the beast, uh, as it were, where I can explode the myth that um, has been put about by Europhiles that Winston Churchill ever wished his own country, the United Kingdom, to be a member of this European project. This was regularly alleged by Jean-Claude Juncker, the president of what had then become the European Union in its long march towards becoming a superstate, and by many other Europhiles, including Britons who should have known better especially during the Brexit debate in its long aftermath when every organ of the British state tried to stymie the will of the British people as expressed in that referendum. For even the most cursory glances at what Churchill actually said in his three great speeches on Europe makes it clear that he considered Britain and her Commonwealth to be politically outside the structure of the United States of Europe rather than integral to it. As he himself said in the Zurich speech, 
Great Britain, the British Commonwealth of Nations, mighty America, must be friends and sponsors of the new Europe and must champion its right to live and shine. Friends and sponsors, ladies and gentlemen, but not joiners. Churchill never envisaged Britain weakening any of her own ties with what was still, until 1949, called the British Commonwealth, let alone the rest of the English-speaking peoples, and primarily her special relationship, itself a phrase that Churchill invented, um, with the United States. He didn't mind Britain even joining the discussion forums, opponents called them talking shops, such as the Council of Europe, but the surrender of any British national sovereignty never so much as crossed his mind. That's why when Churchill became Prime Minister again in October 1951, he did not involve Britain in the discussions that led to the Treaty of Rome, which was signed in 1957, less than two years after he left office. He actively opposed any British involvement in the European coal and steel community and the European army concept during that final premiership. Indeed, he kept Britain, British involvement to being a friend and sponsor of the European project rather than an integral member of it, which as an historian he would have known uh, flew in the face of over 400 years of highly fruitful national independence and sovereignty. The idea of a European army, which is always brought up by Europhiles during crises such as the present one in Ukraine, was described by Churchill as a sludgy amalgam and he recognised that it could only undermine NATO. The European Parliament uh, similarly attracted his ire, and in March 1948 he told his friend Lady Violet Bonham Carter that the European federal solution could not work because, quote, a Parliament of Europe is quite impractical. Uh, and we've just heard, actually, um, several reasons why that is the, uh, that's the case. The very month after he came to power in October 1951, Churchill addressed the question of Britain joining the Schuman Plan. We help, we dedicate, we play a part, he said in a memo to the cabinet, but we are not merged with it and we do not forfeit our insular or commonwealth character. Our first object is the unity and consolidation of the British Commonwealth, our second, the fraternal association of the English-speaking world, and third, united Europe, to which we are, separate, we are a separate, closely and specially related ally and friend. It's only when plans for uniting Europe take a federal form that we ourselves cannot take part because we cannot subordinate ourselves or the control of British policy to federal authorities. These are the words, ladies and gentlemen, that are never quoted by Europhile historians. We are not members of the European defence community, nor do we intend to be merged in a federal European system, Churchill further told the House of Commons uh, on the 11th of May 1953. We feel we have a special relation to both. This can be expressed by prepositions, by the preposition with but not of. We are with them but not of them. When General Montgomery visited Churchill in hospital in 1962, he afterwards told the press that he found Churchill sitting up in bed smoking cigars, uh, drinking brandy, and, uh, quote, protesting against Britain's proposed entry into the common market. <laughs> I know, the idea of smoking cigars and, and, uh, and drinking brandy in hospitals is a rather pleasing one, isn't it? 
The, the um, EEC began as a free trade agreement, providing practical and beneficial commercial arrangements for member nations, but it's since morphed into what its founders had wanted all along, the kind of interfering, top-down, one-size-fits-all bureaucracy that Churchill so despised when he found it elsewhere in politics. And a classic example of this interference in the domestic affairs of smaller nations can be found today in Brussels' arrogant, attempted bullying of Hungary. Uh, where I've recently been staying as a visiting fellow of John O'Sullivan's splendid think tank, the Danube Institute. We've, um, we've, we've, heard, we've heard about this um, described eloquently and denounced eloquently today by Rodrigo and uh, Bolash. A conservative and Christian country that does not share in matters as far removed as transgenderism and mass Islamic fundamentalism and immigration, the same point of view as uh, Ursula von der Leyen and the EU elite, Hungary is effectively being accused of not being a proper democracy and has had 7 billion euros withheld from it by Brussels until it falls into line and changes its society into one approved of by Mrs. von der Leyen. This is a time, ladies and gentlemen, when Hungary is spending tens of billions taking in and finding employment and healthcare for hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian refugees. Surely, the status of Hungary as a functioning democracy is proven by the fact that Viktor Orban's government is facing a general election on Sunday week, whereas Mrs. von der Leyen has become president of Europe despite never having faced an election for the job in which any ordinary voters have had a say. It is to be devoutly hoped by all true Conservatives that Mr Orban wins this election, not least for the rebuke it will send to Brussels for its naked interference in a sovereign nation-state in areas far beyond the economic. In, uh, in Brussels, subsidiarity breeds contempt, um, which, is, uh, which is one... <laughs> thank you. Uh, um, uh, thank you. Uh, in, um, it's one of the reasons that 17.4 million Britons were right to vote for Brexit. Vladimir Putin supported Brexit, but I suspect he's regretting that now, as it's given Britain a new sense of independence, whereby it has supported Ukraine earlier and more meaningfully than large countries of the EU, specifically France and Germany. Mm. No speech on Churchill would be complete without a reflection on the Churchillian leadership that is being shown today by President Vladimir Zelensky. Zelensky saw the Afghan president flee when the Taliban advanced on Kabul and he decided he would not be that kind of leader. Instead, he summoned up his inner Churchill and decided to stay in his capital city and to fight it out. If the Russians were to renew their ground offensive and Zelensky were to die fighting in Kiev, he will become a martyr to Ukrainians for centuries and could indeed be more of a threat to Putin in death than he even is presently in life. <laughs> Zelensky is living in the white heat of history and is proving that he is capable of being up to what Churchill called the level of events. Like Churchill, he endures nightly attacks on his capital city for weeks on end, speaks to his people without sugaring the pill, appeals for the tools to finish the job, and, in a direct paraphrase of Churchill's 4th of June 1940 speech after Dunkirk, has promised to fight in the forests and the streets and not to surrender.
Moreover, although they were both bombed in their capitals, Churchill never had to face enemy ground troops in its suburbs and assassination hit squads. Zelensky's career has spanned those twin extremes of Greek theater, comedy and tragedy, and it seems that there is much more of the latter to be unleashed upon his poor country. President Putin has described Zelensky as a neo-Nazi and a drug addict. Uh, the neo-Nazi jibe stretches credulity for many obvious reasons, not least uh, Zelensky's Jewishness. But with regard to Zelensky's drug addiction, I wish Putin had revealed what actual drug it was um, so that I could uh, try to get some of the same uh, narcotic. Um, any drug, any drug, ladies and gentlemen, that gives you eloquence, good humor and wit, the courage to fight for your beliefs, the leadership skills to keep morale high despite terrible setbacks, and a relentless concentration on the job in hand is one that I think we'd all like over the counter. Winston Churchill said of Finland in January 1940, Finland superb, nay sublime. In the jaws of peril, Finland shows what free men can do. The service rendered by Finland to mankind is magnificent. Today, he would apply those same words to Ukraine. So I'd like to end with a heartfelt plea. I know there are people in the conservative movement, certainly in the United States, who do not support President Zelensky and continue to attack him on websites, tweet negatively about him and so on. I understand their arguments intellectually, some of which are ideological, others to do with the Second World War, others go back to Catherine the Great and others as recent as events during the Trump presidency. But I'd like to take advantage of this bully pulpit to beseech them to recognize that as of the 24th of February 2022, everything has changed not only due to the fact of Putin's invasion, but also due to its manner, the way it's been carried out. We live in a different world now. For all our sophisticated appreciation of realpolitik, we must not blind ourselves to the fact that an evil man has done a terribly evil thing. There are, of course, times when conservatives need to stand up and say things that hardly anyone wants to hear and which run counter to the overwhelming opinion of the world. Churchill himself did that over appeasement during his wilderness years, after all. Yet sometimes I feel that there are some in our movement who enjoy saying the opposite of what everyone else believes merely for its own sake, out of perversity or a love of the limelight that being a contrarian gains them, regardless of the cost to the wider movement and how it looks to ordinary people. They little heed the enormous damage done to the right in denouncing the favorable opinion of Zelensky that is strongly held by many millions, perhaps billions, of people around the world who have been profoundly moved by Ukraine's plight. If you need an example, consider David Stockman, Ronald Reagan's former OMB director, who only this week, sorry, last week, wrote, we are already getting sick and tired of this Zelensky clown, that Zelensky should resign and make way for a collaborationist government that will sue for peace. And he described Ukraine's government as being made up of anti-Russian fascists and oligarchs. At least he didn't mention drug addicts. He went on to argue that Ukraine was not a real country and had no genuine sovereign independence. Ladies and gentlemen, day in and day out, in the streets and suburbs and forests, ordinary Ukrainians are showing that they believe that theirs is a real country. They would not be fighting and dying. They would not be fighting and dying if they did not believe that. The EU 
ladies and gentlemen, is not a real country. No one would fight and die for its flag and its anthem and its leadership. But, uh, but Ukraine has shown that it is. The martyrdom of Ukraine and the Churchillian leadership that Zelensky and his people are showing has changed the whole political landscape. And if we do believe in uniting the right, which was one of the prime motivations behind the foundation of NatCon, and especially if we want to do it when the left is so disunited over Putin and Ukraine, now is the time to show an open-hearted and full-throated support of Ukraine and her leader. Zelensky might indeed have been a comedian in an earlier career, but in the one that history will always remember him, he is just the kind of freedom fighter that conservatives should applaud. Now is not the time to continue fighting the struggles that seem to matter before the, 12th, uh, before the 24th of February. Just as Charles Lindbergh and so many of the American first isolationists quickly and patriotically came round to the overwhelming need for the United States to join in the struggle against Japan and Germany, and thus largely escaped the contempt of history which would otherwise have been their lot, so Zelensky's critics on the right should heed the courage of a people who are battling against a more massive and naked display of barbarism by a great power than can be remembered by almost any one of us in this hall today. Thank you very much.